You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 13th of February 2020 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View coming up today. China's leader Xi Jinping reacts to the COVID-19 crisis. Is it too little too late? My guests Isabel Hilton and Michael Binion will discuss that and the day's other news, including the cabinet reshuffle at 10 Downing Street. Who is in and who is out? And as EU MEPs vote to press ahead with a series of potentially polluting projects, we'll ask where Europe's energy should really be coming from. Plus... Just look at the strong ratings from sports broadcasts, such as the Super Bowl. That incredible Shakira and J-Lo performance this year certainly helped. The power of the live television event with Fernando Augusto Pacheco. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. I'm joined by Isabel Hilton, editor of China Dialogue, and Michael Binion, foreign affairs specialist for The Times. Let's start with China, where the latest figures delineating the coronavirus, now known as COVID-19, are discouraging. 242 more deaths were announced yesterday in Hubei province, making it the worst day of the outbreak so far as we know. In response, two senior Communist Party officials in Hubei province were directed towards the door. This follows the earlier sackings of a number of hapless health officials. It is unclear where these responses rank on the spectrum between doing something and appearing to be doing something. Um, Isabel, first of all, in terms of what they're allegedly concentrating on, which is containing this virus, is there any value in sacking these people? Um, No, um, but it might serve some purpose in containing the discontent. That's the calculation. Uh, whether that whether it will be succeed in that or not, it remains to be seen. Um, but but the, uh, the the difficulty is that that the difficulty that Xi Jinping has is that for the first four weeks, uh, nothing was done. The virus spreads and escapes. Uh, the people who raised the alarm were censored and suppressed and chastised. Everybody knows this. And so the discussion now, as it spreads and people suffer the uh, really very difficult life under the enforced crackdown and enforced quarantining, is whether this is a matter of individual responsibility within the system or whether it is systemic. And there has been a lot of very pointed discussion about the fact that it's systemic. Systemic in the sense that Xi Jinping himself has created an authoritarian top-down system in which nobody dares uh, bring bad news or take any um, responsibility at lower levels without an order from above. And when the mayor of Wuhan offered his resignation, he said, I accept responsibility, but you should know that I could do nothing until I got the word from Beijing. So he was, again, justifying the delay, which was critical delay. Xi Jinping's problem is if you are chairman of everything and supreme wise leader and the party is, you know, the thing that delivers all benefits to the people, what do you do about a situation like this when you have to find somebody to plausibly to blame who is sufficiently senior uh, to satisfy popular discontent and which distracts the attention from the systemic failure? Michael... Do those sackings, though, actually impress the people that the Communist Party hierarchy will be hoping to impress? I mean, I mercifully, touch would do not speak from personal experience of having lived in a large city which is under total lockdown because of a terrifying virus. But I would think in that situation was, if we're going to sack people, can we maybe do that later once we've sorted this out? Surely that is where energy should be directed. 
Yes, except that we don't know whether those two people who were sacked were actually the key figures in sorting it out now. I very much doubt it. I think they've drafted in and already have on the spot people whose primary task is a real scientific approach to containment and to how you actually tackle uh, the virus, how you measure it for a start. That's why we've had this upsurge in uh, cases reported. It's not, well, it may be that they are increasing in number, but they probably identified many more cases because they've got a more accurate and better way of diagnosing the virus. Uh, I don't think that uh, sackings will in themselves uh, do very much about the containment question. I think it is, to some extent, uh, as people have said, it's the Chernobyl factor for China. I mean, Chernobyl did did really crack open the communist system in Russia, in the Soviet Union. And that was extent. at a time when, obviously, when it was much easier to control flows of information, especially Indeed. overseas, than it now Indeed. is. Indeed, and it's not easy now. I do think lessons will be learned, but not visibly so, and I think uh, uh, I agree very much with Isabel, an authoritarian system, it's very difficult to see how it can liberalise itself without without undermining its own foundations. Uh, but I think the key thing that will matter to ordinary Chinese is, have they got a grip on the containment of the virus? That's what's going to count. Um, Isabel, again, that is presumably and indeed hopefully what the Communist Party are currently focused on. But how anxious will they have been made by some of the repercussions, the suspensions of flights, the travel bans? And we're now starting to see cancellations and postponements of major events, including the Chinese Grand Prix. And that's scheduled for Shanghai as far ahead as April. I mean, this is not just obviously going to be incredibly economically damaging. This is this is reputationally damaging, isn't it? It's hugely reputationally damaging. And uh, you've seen the Chinese government do uh, two things uh, which are really directed, again, to controlling the narrative. One is to try and solicit congratulations from all around the world for its, uh, for its firm action. So you had the uh, rather curious sight of the Chinese ambassador to London complaining to the prime minister's father that the prime minister had failed to send a note of sympathy and congratulation to Xi Jinping, and Xi Jinping was a little miffed. Um, this is apparently how the world works now. <laughs> Indeed. And at the same time, uh, you have the same ambassador rebuking Britain for overreacting. I mean, this from a country which has locked down you know, <laughs> 60 million people um, in, in terms of, you know, in fact, Britain's reaction has been relatively mild. Other countries have actually banned the arrival of Chinese citizens. So all of this is, is very preoccupying. Equally preoccupying is the, the, the real material economic effect, because now that you have locked down a major industrial city, you know, 11 million people. When do you judge it safe to to say, okay, everyone go back to work? Because the fact is, they haven't got a grip on this uh, epidemic. They've simply, you know, imposed status and radio silence on it. So at the point at which they say, okay, back to normal, and <laughs> and they risk another, you know, return of another wave of of coronavirus, or do they say, no, everybody stay home for for the foreseeable future and risk the economy crashing? It's a very very tricky situation for them. Michael Binion and Isabel Hilton back with more from you both in just a moment. First, here's Monocle's Yolene Goffan with some of the other stories we're following today. Thanks, Andrew. There has been a sharp increase in the number of deaths from coronavirus in the Chinese province of Hubei. Officials have started using a broader definition to diagnose people, which accounts for most of the rise. But there are concerns that China is suppressing the full extent of the outbreak. 
Italy's Senate has voted to allow the far-right leader Matteo Salvini to stand trial over charges of holding migrants at sea. Salvini, who has served as the country's interior minister, is accused of illegally keeping people on a boat off the coast of Sicily last summer. The chair of Iowa's Democratic Party has resigned following chaotic scenes at last week's caucus. Troy Price apologized for a number of technical errors at the party gathering, including the failure of a new app which was supposed to collect results from more than 1,700 precincts. Those are today's headlines. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Yolene. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller here with Isabel Hilton and Michael Binion. Let's stick with the subject of public officials being declared surplus to requirements in the interests of endowing a national government with the appearance of decisiveness. The UK's Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, has been reshuffling his cabinet. The thumping majority awarded to him by British voters at December's election gives him considerable freedom to manoeuvre, so it is a reasonable assumption that the cabinet which emerges will be more reflective uh, of the kind of government Johnson wishes to lead. Um, Michael, let's start with the headline news, the somewhat startling resignation of uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer, Sajid Javid. Well, I think he's quite right. He was asked to, uh, I mean, intolerable conditions were going to be put on him. Uh, Why should a minister uh, have uh, advisers appointed by somebody else who effectively would have no loyalty to him? They would be sort of spies in his own Uh, cab. They would be reporting to number 10 Downing Street. But worse than that, they would be reporting to the Prime Minister's chief and seemingly all-powerful guru, namely Dominic Cummings, who has already quarrelled with the Chancellor. And the question is, who runs the Treasury? Does uh, the Prime Minister's special advisor run it or does the Chancellor run it? Uh, I think, secondly, uh, Sajid Javid saw uh, an almost impossible situation looming, namely that the Prime Minister has already promised billions for what I think are very worthwhile things, namely um, the, the new transport uh, boost, a new infrastructure for transport, uh, much more money for health, uh, jobs, economic development in the north, all these sort of things. But it's billions and billions. And the question is, where does the money come from? And if the Chancellor has been told you can't raise taxes, he will be blamed for not producing a magic money tree to pay for all this. Uh, and therefore, he will be put in an impossible position. And I think he saw that coming. Uh, It is a quaint tradition, the cabinet reshuffle, uh, Isabel. It it doesn't make an awful lot of sense, I don't think, to a lot of democratic countries which don't observe the the Westminster system by which you are obliged to choose your government from the material with which the voters have furnished you, which is is not necessarily always uh, top-draw stuff. Uh, Among the people who have been given uh, the heave today uh, is uh, Esther McVeigh, the housing minister. Uh, If I've done my maths right, she is the 19th housing minister since 1999. Um, is, is there an argument that British prime ministers are rather too fond of this? We've just been through a rather unstable time, as you But uh, even, even might, allowed for that, that's, that's ridiculous, yes, it? Is isn't ridiculous. It is ridiculous. And in fact, it's been... You know, the, the, the British system uh, claims for itself the virtue of the amateur, so that, you know, the bright, preferably Oxford-educated person can easily pick up, you know, what policy is meant to be. And, of course, you've got the civil service for telling you the boring stuff. Um, but, I, but yeah, the, 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 time, the time in office, assuming it takes about six months to get your head around a, co- a complex issue like housing, you don't have very much time to do anything. And, and, and clearly it takes you that long to ridiculous. figure out how the printer works. Indeed, well, that's 
in your case, but um, but some people you'd have a chat <laughs> who, who knew how the printer worked. But 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 I think the the point of this reshuffle is that you've got a a, a prime minister who you know is faced with the self-inflicted task of trying to marry reality with what he's promised. Uh, this is not going to be easy. Um, and and what he doesn't want is rebellion round the table. So he's picking a lot of quite junior people. He's getting rid of a lot of more experienced uh, politicians and picking promoting quite junior people uh, who will be utterly dependent on him for their jobs. So he's doing a bit of a Trump, you know, the kind of getting rid of anyone who might be regarded as disloyal or has been disloyal in the past. Well, that's, so that's, that that's, can... I mean, that's working out brilliantly in the United States. Indeed, yes. Well, I think we can look forward confidently to the golden age of, uh, uh, I, of Boris Johnson's... Yes, uh... I wouldn't be quite so harsh on that. I don't mm. think that some of those he's getting rid of deserve to stay. I mean, there was some dead wood that definitely needed to go. The, you, no, no one's, I wouldn't no argue no with that, no Michael. Dis- no one's disputing that, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite how much dead wood has floated also, to the surface. Think, <laughs> well, if you have a thumping majority, you need a team that you can personally make rely on and direct. Now, it doesn't mean that they're all going to be moved on in a year's time if it doesn't work out. I mean, that's the assumption that when things don't work out, you simply change the face at the top uh, and then you, you start again. And uh, that's a recipe for complete paralysis. Well, I, mean, I, I hate to disagree with my distinguished colleague on <laughs> constitutional grounds, but, but, but we have a system of government which is meant to be collective responsibility in cabinet in which the prime minister is simply premier in inter pares. This is not, you know, a presidential system. This is meant to be a, a system of collective responsibility in which, for example, the chance Chancellor of the Exchequer's primary job is to manage the economy. Now, if he feels that the conditions being set on him did not allow him to do that, we should all be very worried. And I actually, I think that Dominic Cummings taking on the Treasury in this very aggressive way is probably unwise. The Treasury has a long history of, you know, chewing up and spitting out people who uh, who took issue with it. Um, and and the only way forward for to marry this problem of, you know, what how do you find the money for these? enormous spending promises. The obvious answer is you borrow from the future, which again is something that the Treasury might well be opposed to, but something that would be enormously tempting for Johnson. Yes, I agree with you that you don't want a special advisor running the government uh, or running it in the name of the Prime Minister. I think that's absolutely pernicious, and I I think the comeuppance will, will, will come at some point soon. But I also don't think it's realistic to say that uh, each individual minister has um, more or less freedom in their fiefdom. I think it is much more, uh, maybe not in theory, but in practice, British governments are run in a more presidential way than they have been, uh, say, uh, 50 years ago. It is, it's evolved more and more in that direction, It hasn't certainly it? has. And the Prime Minister, and I would go back to Tony Blair, where he was very much the dominant force in his own government as a sort of not a presidential Prime Minister. Of course, he was faced with one strong rival who tried to make a different pillar. He had the Chancellor of the Exchequer who succeeded him as Prime Minister. But the fact is that most governments now think it's more helpful to get the thing done if the man at the top has pretty much the um, the the visible lead in deciding policy. Uh, just finally on this, Michael, I did want to ask about one of the other headline heave-hoes, which is Julian Smith, the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland. He was reckoned to be actually doing quite well, and in fact... On hearing of his sacking, Leo Varadkar, the presumably outgoing Taoiseach of the Republic of Ireland, uh, put an extraordinary tribute online. He said, in eight months as Secretary of State, Julian, you helped to restore power sharing instalment, secured an agreement with us to avoid a hard border, plus marriage equality. You are one of Britain's finest politicians of our time. Thank you. Yes. Why would you dump a man like that? Well, I, there I agree with uh, Isabel very much. I think I, he was personally antagonistic to Boris Johnson, and Boris Johnson wants loyalists. And 
he uh, also he uh, Boris Johnson felt he was not included enough in the negotiations that led to the uh, re-establishment of devolved government in Stormont, which was was some achievement. Uh, and uh, Boris Johnson, I think, felt he wanted to take more credit for that. But uh, the Prime Minister's Ireland policy is something of a mess anyway. And, uh, you know, it, I think he just wants somebody there that he feels uh, is close to him, but he doesn't want somebody who seems to take initiatives without his own say-so. Um, uh, it's nice that Leo Varadkar has sent this glowing tribute to his colleague across the border in Northern Ireland, but Leo Varadkar himself is history, I'm afraid. So he's about to disappear as uh, Taoiseach of Ireland. Uh, indeed so. Well, let's move on now and look at a subject about which everyone agrees something should be done while frequently emitting mixed messages about precisely what. The EU, generally keen as an entity to depict itself as environmentally concerned, has approved 32 major gas infrastructure projects. Here, perhaps, is the core of the conundrum. While no sane person disputes that it would be better to run nations on clean energy, the lights need to be kept on until we figure out how to do that. Um, Isabel, it's obviously very, very easy to spin this as bad hypocrisy, etc., and so forth. Is it actually? Well, it depends if, if bringing on new gas uh, accelerates the transition out of coal, because Europe has a big coal problem. In mm. Germany has a coal problem um, and, and is trying to deal with it. Poland has a coal problem and isn't trying to deal with it. So, you know, it, it, gas is presented as the transition fuel in this sense, and it's much less polluting than coal, but obviously not as good as, as renewables. So... Uh, it depends kind of how you regard the timescale. Um, it's actually technically cheaper now to build renewables than to build new gas. So, you know, you have a certain amount of time lag in the system. But if you regard gas as a transitional fuel and you say uh, uh, you build gas for the capacity market, mm. which means that when you have no other alternative, you can ramp up gas, you know, on a kind of need basis uh, to meet peak demand or whatever but you assume that it will run for 25 or 30 years to in order to be economical then you just this just about squeezes into the 2050 um, uh, net zero timetable it's not very positive and I have to say that again in the context of cop 26 which is taking place in Glasgow as we as we speak uh, in the autumn and which is in a horrible horrible mess partly because of British incompetence but also because of uh, of you know the kind of zombie apocalypse in the White House uh, on climate um, you know we we need to accelerate things and that means that the, that anything that the European Union does the European Union being the only body, substantial body, uh, which exerts any leadership on climate at all right now. So this will come under scrutiny. I, I personally don't think it's all that bad. Um, but it's come at a time when we need much more ambition to be proclaimed uh, by Europe. Uh, to encourage others in the run-up to COP26. Michael, does some of the response to these gas infrastructure projects tell us something about the problem of how we discuss climate? Because it, it has become one of those subjects on which everybody, well, not everybody, but many people, certainly the noisiest people, are taking a position on faith uh, and therefore no transgression against what they've decided to believe can be permitted or tolerated. 
Yes, to some extent. I think it's certainly true that uh, the science is still uh, murky, but it's pretty clear to everybody that this is an immediate and growing problem. But to blame it all on, I mean, to blame every single factor as a contributory factor, I think is a bit unrealistic. Uh, I agree very much with Isabel that gas as an intermediary solution is important. The key thing is to get down coal use. I mean, to to abolish coal use. That is mm. the big polluter. And if gas has to fill the gap for a while, okay. Uh, and uh, as long as it's a limited period. Now, uh, what the science says about that is still, to some extent, disputed. Uh, the The purists would ban any form of carbon generation, anything. I mean, aircraft, uh, things you do in your own home, the manufacture of things that demand electricity, which in turn demand uh, results in carbon pollution. I mean, you can take a completely purist point of view, and that was would be foolish. Well, just finally on today's news panel, we should acknowledge the fact that it is World Radio Day, a day in theory dedicated to the, the celebration of the medium in which we are presently broadcasting. I wanted to ask each of you in turn just quickly what role you think radio still plays, because it, it has been written off many times before. Every time any new means of mass broadcast arrive, people would say, ah, this will spell the end of radio. And yet we're still here. It's uh, not only still here, but I think more popular than ever. Mm. Uh, and, and, you know, it's it's acquiring new forms of transmission, rather like the coronavirus. You know, you can, <laughs> you, you can, you know, you we, can we appreciate that comparison as well. Thank you. <laughs> as, as, as a podcast, the Internet has kind of transformed it. I think it's um, I think it has a very sound and robust future, which I certainly applaud. Michael, do you find yourself listening to it as much or as little as you ever used to or in exciting and different ways? Uh, about the same, actually. Um, um, but I'm very choosy about what I listen to. I tend to listen particularly to music on radio. I, I find that an excellent way of listening to music. And it was a good good selection. And uh, I, I, I enjoy it. I also quite like the idea of having a world radio day. I mean, we have a world something day on every day of the year now. And uh, that's always fun because you can draw attention to it. It can be faintly ridiculous. In the old Soviet Union, they had a world day of this and a world day of that, which was always a, an occasion for a good booze of, you know, drink vodka in the factory. World Cabbage Day was the one I enjoyed most. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone then just, just celebrated with vodka all day long. Uh, and if World Radio Surely Day... Surely means... they should have been compelled to celebrate with cabbage all day long, <laughs> Well, they started with cabbage, maybe. But we're looking around laugh. the studio for the alcohol, I think. We've... <laughs> uh, well, well, no, we're, we're celebrating World Radio Day by being on the radio, Isabel. Well, that's that's, good. that's what a, how what a this point, thing yeah. works. If you'd come in on World Cabbage Day. It would have been cabbages. It would have yeah. been cabbages all round. <laughs> Isabel Hilton and Michael Binion, thank you both very much for joining us. In a moment, a little bit more about the future of live television events. Is anyone still watching? You're listening to Monocle's House View. Stay tuned. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. Finally today, Monocle's culture correspondent, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, reflects on what makes a good live TV show. In the streaming era, it's getting harder and harder to host a live television show that can grip an audience. Even award ceremonies are feeling the pressure. The Oscars this year was the least watched ceremony ever, with only 23.6 million tuning in live. A strong dip compared to last year's show. Well, hello! It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood, a beautiful day for... With so many options at their fingertips, are viewers growing bored of live pomp and ceremonies on television? 
It's not just the Oscars' problem, of course. Maintaining TV ratings has caused headaches for the producers of the Grammys, the Emmys and the Golden Globes. Yet, there's certainly still a desire for live viewing experiences done right. Just look at the strong ratings from sports broadcasts, such as the Super Bowl. That incredible Shakira and J-Lo performance this year certainly helped. And the Football World Cup. This suggests that people will still happily watch a three-hour-plus show if it can stay fresh and entertaining. Some say these live shows are too long. I say, keep them long and fun. That was Fernando Augusto Pacheco, and that's all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Tom Hall. Our studio managers were Christy Evans and Louis Allen. Coming up at 2000, Andrew Tuck with a brand new edition of The Urbanist. Monocle's House View returns at 1800 London time tomorrow. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. Hold up. 